I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Today on Conversations, we're talking with former Congressman Scott Klug. Scott Klug grew up in West Allis and Tosin. He went on to a career as a TV reporter, winning 12 Emmys along the way. He then served four terms in Congress representing Madison. He came back to Wisconsin. He founded a magazine and a book publishing company. And, well, he now works as a public affairs director for a national law firm. Scott also has led training programs for the State Department. He served as an election observer in Iraq. But as we approach the 2024 presidential campaign, he's developed something new, the Lost in the Middle podcast. You know, Scott, you have to get easily bored. (laughs) Well, I'm restless. I think that's just genetically how I work. Yeah. So it's a new experiment. We're having fun with it. It's coming soon to uh, those familiar podcast sites, but we can talk more about that. But thanks for the kind introduction. Some people will say what an amazing career and other people will say you just can't hold a job. And that's probably closer to the truth. Well, let's go back to you grew up. You went to what? Marquette University High School. I did. Yep. And you then went on to Northwestern. For graduate school. And you had, what, a journalism degree? Yeah, I have a master's in journalism from Medill, which is named after Joseph Medill, who is, I'm looking at Libby to see if she has a clue, the founder of the Chicago Tribune. So that was journalism school. Then I started my TV career in Wausau, where the best thing was I met my wife, who's from suburban Wausau, basically, and then worked in TV in Seattle and Washington. And then when we were in D.C. one day, my then three-year-old son came home and asked for a Redskins jersey. And I looked at Tess and said, we're moving. So back to Madison, we went. So you had to, you had to get him a Packers jersey instead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was uh, no child of mine is going to grow up as a Washington Redskins fan or the Commanders <laughs> or whatever they're called this week. I want to go back to when you were a reporter, because one of your first stories, big stories that went national was when you were in Seattle. This is a racketeering story, I think. No, no. The the Mount St. Helens. Oh, OK. So sorry. <laughs> you, you had a racketeering story? Yeah. Actually, it's a sad story. It was before the development of cell phones. And so on Sunday morning, Tess and I went for a walk to grab a newspaper and some donut-like product to eat and a cup of coffee, which was the exact same moment my assignment editor was trying to find me to cover Mount St. Helens. So I actually went into the station and I was the fill-in anchor till they woke the real people up on a Sunday morning. But I was there for, in fact, the Sunday before, I was actually with my photographer and his dad and Tess flying over Mount St. Helens and sort of the regular coverage we had to monitor it. So it was an incredible story. I was not in the middle of all of it, but I had a chance to watch a newsroom perform at sort of top speed, and we won a lot of national awards for our coverage. Now, what about this racketeering story? (laughs) That'll be tough to explain very quickly. (laughs) I think we should skip that over, and I can tell you off, Mike. All right. So you were... Obviously successful in your TV news career. I mean, Washington, D.C. is a pretty big market, and you could have gone anywhere from there and maybe even ended up at the network. But instead, you decided to leave television and get into politics. Well, I decided that nobody in their right mind stays in TV past their mid-30s. And you're always sort of one cold sore away from the end of your career, right? So I had a chance to work 
forget, two really good local network affiliates. The station I worked in in Seattle was arguably one of the top five or six local stations in the country. But I got to a point where I was ready to do something different. And so we came back to Madison and I went to business school and worked at the ABC affiliate in Madison for about two years. And then one day, a guy who remains a very close friend took me out, plied me with pizza and beer and said, have you ever thought about running for Congress? It was a little bit of a fool's errand because I ran against somebody who uh, had been elected 16 terms. So he was approaching his 33 year in Congress. But the Madison area had changed out from under him. And what had happened is that there were more voters outside of Madison in Dane County than in Madison itself. And so the trick was, you know, you could not find a Republican in Madison. You couldn't find a Democrat in Monroe and Baraboo and Dodgeville and places like that. So the fight was, could I win Sun Prairie, Wanakee, all the Madison collar suburbs? And the timing was right. And the election was right. And so You know, there was this great scene in a movie with Robert Redford called The Candidate, where he wins an election and knocks off a longstanding senator. And the last scene of the movie, they're in an elevator going up and the doors close and he looks at his campaign manager and says, now what? And I literally had that same moment that election night because it flew by in a snap. And I had a great honor to serve in Congress for eight years. But much like my career in journalism, I'm perpetually restless. And so it was time to do something else. And philosophically, I'm a believer in term limits. I don't think politics was meant to be a career. I pledged I'd serve no more than 12 years or six terms. I actually quit after four when my oldest son was going to be a freshman in high school. And after I quit, somebody wrote me a note, which I still have kept, which said, nice job. Always leave the stage while they're still applauding. (laughs) That's a great philosophy. And Tammy Baldwin was elected to your spot afterwards. Tammy was right, went on to the Senate, and we couldn't be more different philosophically, but she's a good friend and I think does some great work in the Senate. I don't think my voting record would be anything like hers, but I think we're in a part of our political process when we have to appreciate you can have closely held beliefs, you can argue passionately, but at the end of the day, you still have to respect the other person's opinions. That's what democracy is all about, right? You argue, you try to find places you can collaborate, and there's nothing wrong with you know making the best case for your position in the most fiery way possible, but at the end of the day, you have to agree and move forward. And that's what's really missing in the system, which is part of the reason I started to work on this podcast. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations... My wife's father throws at me a front page of USA Today, which says members of Congress bounce checks in their own bank. And he said, nice job. Former Madison Congressman Scott Klug talks about getting to Washington and finding out a lot of congressmen were bouncing checks. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with Scott Klug, who spent eight years in Congress representing Madison. I want to go back to your first impression of Washington. You had been covering politicians as a reporter. Now you are one. What was your impression when you first got in there and looked around at the other people who had been there much longer than you? I never really had of Andy a Mayberry moment, right? There were folks who got elected with me who were, you know, a small town banker from Nebraska and a guy who'd been a professor. Uh, another guy who was a building contractor, and they never really spent any time in D.C. So when I got elected, I knew what to expect and I knew where to go. And I carried a Metro Pass in my back pocket to wander around town because I'd lived and worked in Washington for eight years before then. And I think it gave me a huge advantage coming out of the media because I understood how the press worked. In some cases, I think especially for the local press, 
press in Madison, it was harder for them than it was for me because they had to be objective and I was a friend. So that was, I think, an awkward moment for journalists because I was wearing a different baseball cap. But the thing you have to remember about Congress is it moves at glacial speed. So anybody who goes there and says, I'm going to change the world, if you've ever been on a committee for a high school reunion or a committee in your student council or a committee in your local chamber of commerce, you know what committees are like to work with. And there's 435 of you. If you go in understanding you can move issues at the margins, you can represent your constituents well, you can do great constituent work for people and companies back in your home state, I think you can have a very fulfilling career. If you run for office assuming you're going to go and rewrite the IRS code, it's going to be a long, slow, disappointing world. But when you got there, you got involved with a group that was a little notorious, the Gang of Seven. John Boehner, Rick Santorum, a couple other guys, and you. How did that all come about? I can blame my late father-in-law. So I came back home actually from being in Washington and Chuck, my wife's father, throws at me a front page of USA Today, which says members of Congress bounce checks in their own bank. And he said, nice job. And I said, I have no idea what this is. I've never even heard of this. And so we get back to Washington the following week and a bunch of us said, I don't know what this is, but whatever it is, all of these records should be made public. You didn't know about any of this? None of these guys did? No. I mean, we all had a house account, right? We had a, like a local checking account because it was pre-internet days and you had to have an account nearby to pay bills or pay an electric bill or whatever the case might be. And so we demanded basically that they make the records public. And they said, well, we can't do that. It's like a credit unit. It's just members of Congress putting in money and you're all in a big pool. And it's like BS. But this is actually run by the House Sergeant of Arms and there are administrative costs involved in running this. So let the records go. And we were notorious because we caused a lot of problems on the floor. At the end of the day, they made the records public. There were probably eight or nine members of Congress who either retired or were beat in elections because of it. The sergeant of arms who ran the House Bank ended up going to prison. And ultimately, down the road, it led to an investigation and to some senior members, including Dan Rostenkowski, who was then the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, a very notorious and nefarious Chicago politician in all of the best senses and worst senses of Chicago politicians. And he went from being the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee to my constituent at the Oxford Federal Correctional Institute, which is in my congressional district, because he had to serve a couple years' time. So you can have... An impact on Congress and the government from an oversight perspective pretty easily, and we had a lot of fun doing it. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. The Sunnis had traditionally been the police force and the army, and they'd all been disbanded and all had lost jobs. Former Madison Congressman Scott Klug talks about being an election observer in Iraq, as well as other programs where he's traveled on behalf of the State Department. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with former Madison Congressman Scott Kluge. Obviously, there were a lot of senior members looking at the seven freshmen. Did anybody ever take you aside and say, let me explain how this works? You're definitely going in the wrong direction, and you need to be one of the, well, you need to be one of the good old boys. Well, I didn't want to be one of the good old boys. But did anybody ever say that to you? Not in so many words. I actually got advice probably more from people back home who said, you don't want to ruffle feathers. It's going to cause trouble for you. Now, a lot of my constituents loved it and ate it up. But the worst thing in the world you can do is tell a former journalist, don't go there. As Tess will tell you, if anybody ever points to a locked door, that's exactly the place I want to go. And it's sort of what I've always done through my career is to push through those kind of obstacles. And so rather than being sort of bullied by other members, we became part of the story 
story. And so folks didn't want to put themselves at risk where we can say that's the guy or that's the woman who's blocking the records we asked for. So it was pretty heady times. I mean, we were on This Week with David Brinkley, on Nightline, on Meet the Press, on just about everything that was going on. And so it made a reputation for all of us moving forward. And for Boehner, it essentially launched his career to eventually become Speaker of the House. Jim Nussel eventually became the Director of the Office of Management Budget. Rick Santorum ended up getting elected to the Senate and serving for a couple terms from Pennsylvania. So most of us used it as a career to sort of bounce to bigger things. And for me, it was just, I always loved oversight. I meant members of Congress have three responsibilities. You vote, you help constituents, and then you oversee the federal government. And I'm sort of an old-fashioned libertarian Republican. I don't like the government. I don't like the government involved in my life, in my business, in my church, in my bedroom. Keep it out. So when I was in Congress, I had probably one of the top 10 records in Congress for voting to cut federal spending. And that was my passion and remains such. No, and you had, what, the second most independent record of an elected official in Wisconsin? I did. Yeah, over the last 40 years. I think Bill Proxmire was the only one who who topped my record. And Proxmire made a career out of being iconoclastic. But I think you have to look at issues based on the record, right? And in some cases, just because a Democrat came up with the idea, it doesn't mean it's a horrible idea. Sometimes they actually had things right and the Republicans were wrong and vice versa. Now, I normally voted Republican 80 or 85 percent of the time, but there were 15 or 20 percent of the time when I thought the party had it wrong on issues. And one of the issues now, which is interesting because I think the perception of most Republicans has changed, it was the first votes on family and medical leave. And the original family and medical leave legislation didn't require the companies to pay for it. It's just simply said in a family emergency or the birth of a child, you have the right to take some time off from work. And does seems completely reasonable to me today as it did when I first voted on it 30 years ago. After you left Congress, you then got involved with the State Department and went on a lot of training they weren't really expeditions, but training, what would you call them? Well, training programs. Training programs. So, so the State Department, and there's two groups, a Republican and a Democratic group, which do the same sort of work and oftentimes do it jointly, is to build civil society in countries that have not had a democracy. So I spent time in Guatemala when folks were trying to figure out how to set up their electoral college system. I was in Bhutan when the Bhutanese government, in a culture that accentuates agreement, suddenly is now trying to figure out democracy when they don't like to disagree with one another. I had a chance to be an election observer in Iraq in 2012, and that was the same situation. It was two former members of Congress, two former members of the Canadian Parliament, and two parliamentarians from the European Union. And I believe strongly in American values, and I believe strongly in democracy and in constitutional government and setting up the rule of law. And so it's been a great joy of mine from a personal ethos in that I believe in those principles and sharing them with the rest of the world. And I'm also never happier than when I'm traveling. So I love to meet people from other cultures and go to other places. So it's been a great honor to help the State Department in that mission under both Republican and Democratic administrations, and also a chance to get to some places I never would have gotten to otherwise. You mentioned the election in Iraq. That had to be an incredible experience. It was interesting because it wasn't the first election. It was really the second one. And we were supposed to be observers. And I'm not sure that, you know, we had translators with us. I'm not sure we would have had the ability to sort of spot wide scale fraud in the background. But we all were under fairly heavy security. So I'll tell you just one quick story. We went out one Saturday morning to watch the election happening. And your listeners may remember these days when people would get their fingers colored with ink after they voted. And you'd see these great pictures in the paper of people holding their thumbs up with ink on them. But we didn't know what to expect because there was still a lot of trouble. And so interestingly, we go out and sort of these long lines of black SUVs, like right out of 24. And 
where the vote's going to happen? Like every other place in the world, in schools. So we're on our way up to a Shia neighborhood. And at that point, what happened is because the Shia had been so suppressed by the Sunnis, they were actually very happy to see Americans although it's now sort of turned on its head the more Iran's gotten involved. And the Sunnis were very hostile because the Sunnis had traditionally been the police force and the army, and they'd all been disbanded and all had lost jobs. So you could quickly tell which neighborhood you were in just by the reactions of the people. So I'm in the backseat with a woman who's my interpreter who's Lebanese and talking about Middle Eastern food, and I love Middle Eastern food. And she said, have you had any Iraqi bread yet? And I said, no, what's the difference? And she said, it's much more coarse than most bread you'll see around here. So as we pull up to go into the school, we park on the street, and what's to my right? A bakery. And I said, well, maybe when we're done doing this observation, we can go find some bread in this bakery. And the security guys say, you can't go in there. None of us can go in there. And it's like, what, guys, they like made a fake bakery on the off chance some goofy American would go and go buy a loaf of bread? Let's talk about this when we're done at the school. So we go into the school, like I said, just like voting paces in America, most of them are in schools. And who staffs the voting records? Think about it. Most of the time, it tends to be a lot of grandmas, basically. So this woman is looking at the person who's watching me sort of sign in and read over her shoulder. And she said, that's the kind of bread and points at this plastic bag where the bread's in. And then the woman asked my interpreter what I was talking about. And I said, oh, the bread. Boom. It was like walking into a collection of grandmothers everywhere. Before I noted, I had bread in one hand and cheese in the other and jam in front of me and water and juice and everything else under the world. So it was an interesting experience because you always had to be sort of scramble on a moment's notice if you needed to. But I could tell you from my experience, it was an honor to be there, a word I keep using a lot, but also to see sort of the excitement on people's faces in Iraq, just having the ability to vote for parties. Now, over the last 20 years, it's not turned out the way all of us would have hoped it would, but. But I can tell you that that experience in 2012 was one of the best experiences of my life. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. 44% of the American public self-identifies as centrist. And I don't think anybody's listening to those people. Former Madison Congressman Scott Klug talks about why most people don't really identify with partisan politics. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is former Madison Congressman Scott Klug. So you came back (laughs) and you work for a law firm. And I know you go back and forth to Washington quite a bit working on things. But you came up with the idea of doing a podcast for the 2024 election. Scott, I know you could have gotten a job in radio. (laughs) Why a podcast? Well, here's the backstory. So we all remember the great moment of American history, the Kevin McCarthy election, when it went on for 100 votes or whatever it seemed to be at that point. And I got stopped in Madison by people in coffee shops, in line at a movie theater, at the cereal aisle of a grocery store. And people sort of said, what was going on? I mean, who elected these people? The Republicans are running around the country pulling middle school books off the shelves and the Democrats are trying to yank the stove out of my kitchen. You know, I don't get it. So I reached out to a friend of mine who runs a website in Wisconsin called wispolitics.com. And I said, Jeff, we should think about doing a podcast on the lost political middle. If you look, 44% of the American public self-identifies as centrist. If you look at the Brookings Institute, did a big study about a year and a half ago, and they asked 2,000 people, if you had a choice, would you want a Democratic Party to the left of where it is today, a Republican Party to the right of where it is, sort of leave things alone or split the middle? And it was 44% were split the middle. There was 10% for more left, 10% for more right, and then some other folks were just sort of muddled in the middle. And I don't think anybody's listening to those people, you know, not listening to it because the press tends to accentuate 
the more extreme sort of the uh, you know celebrity political campaigners. Uh, I think people like to find reasons to fight in Washington, and I don't think most people think that way. But that's not the way it has traditionally been on city councils and county boards and state legislatures. I said earlier, you can have deeply held opinions, but at the end of the day, you shake hands and some days you win and some days you lose. I met one of the people we talked to in the first podcast is Frank Luntz, who many of your listeners may know from TV. Frank does these great focus groups where he gets 20 people in a room and gets them to talk about how they're feeling. And I said, what's going on in the country? And he said, the whole country's crazy. When you get 65% of what you want, how is that not a victory? You know, and he used an old Jewish phrase, they're Meshugano, we're crazy. And so that's, that's who we really want to talk to and listen. And in the podcast, we're not spending much time in Washington with the talking heads, right? Because the operative verb is they're talking, they're not listening. And we think if you talk to Americans out there, there's some really pretty school, pretty cool stories if you listen carefully. And we think there's people who are trying to change sort of the current political zeitgeist, and that's where we come from. How do you find the people for the podcast? Um, well, it's interesting. People don't like to talk about politics very much anymore. Um, we start, so the first episode is actually based in Rockford, Illinois, in Winnebago County. Rockford, as your listeners may know, is uh, Forbes called it the third most miserable city in America. <laughs> and it still sort of lives up to that reputation. But it has the distinction of voting for six of the last seven times for the winning presidential candidate. The only time it didn't, Hillary won it by 71 votes. So it's classic middle America, tired manufacturing town, farming, agriculture, universities, a great microcosm. And we actually called up people who won in the local Rockford magazine 40 under 40 awards. And we just said, we want to talk to you about what the current political climate's like. And the current political climate is like all of us know it is. I meant people who haven't talked to their sister for a year because they got in a fight at Thanksgiving. I meant people walk on eggshells now. You never know who you're going to offend and where it goes. And in the old days, you could sort of laugh it off or you could say, ah, you know, you and I disagree. Now it has a virulence that never existed before. So we also talked to Frank about who he, sees, who he sees as centrist voters around the country. And there's a whole chunk of them. But Libby, like I want to tell you just in quick 20 seconds, one of the stories that I think is terrific in Ohio which used to be a battleground state, the Republicans won it with nearly 65% in 2020, excuse me, in 2022, supermajority in the legislature. And the young guns come in, and what they decide is they're going to purge all the old line Republicans. They get together in the caucus and reelect the whole new class, throw everybody out of their office Christmas week, I could not begin to make this up, and said, that's it, you're all done, you're all gone. And not only the members, but the staff all gets fired. So the old guard Ohio Republicans go to the Democrats in the legislature and say, you know what, let's cut a deal for a bipartisan speaker. You're going to vote for a Republican, but it's going to be a Republican you know you can work with. You're not going to be able to work with these people. So sort of a lost story in, in uh, January of 23 is that the Republicans and the Democrats, about 45 percent of the Republican caucus and all of the Democrats elected a Republican speaker. Now, how's that for a story compared to the clown show that went on in Washington? And I think that's sort of a great model for the country. But why don't we hear about that? Well, because it's not what people want to see. I meant, you know, think about the McCarthy stuff. It was just goofy, you know. And there's a whole class of people in office today who do what political scientists will call performative politics, which means they just want attention. They don't want to get anything done. I mean, I want to do an episode on a visit to the jihadists. I mean, there are some people out there on the left and the right who don't believe in collaboration, don't believe in cooperation, don't believe in getting anything done. And so they're just there to disrupt the system. And look, I'm a small government 
government Republican. As you heard me earlier, I'm not a big fan of the government and how it works. It intrudes in my life and my business and into my wallet far too much for my taste. But some things just have to get done. You know, And so that's why we have decided to focus on these kind of stories. And your reaction is the same reaction everybody has when I tell them that story. It's like, well, I didn't know that happened. And similarly, there are lots of other great stories like that around the country. And that's going to be the backbone of the stories we're doing in the podcast. Are there multiple stories in each podcast? Yeah. So every episode probably has six or seven interviews. They're not a political talk show. There's no droning on about the value of their earned income tax credit. And if you want to listen to what my friend Ben Sass said, who's a former senator from Florida, now the president of the University of Florida, he said, I have no interest in listening to the blathering which is sort of how I feel about it. And that's what you get on Sunday mornings. Everybody talks in circles. If you go out there in America and talk to folks in taverns and restaurants, sitting around watching softball games at their kids' school meetings, that's not how America is. That's what's become the caricature of what America is. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. I dragged my high school girlfriend and said, we've got tickets tonight for the old Milwaukee Arena. And she's thinking, Fleetwood Mac, Cream, you know, who's in town, who's touring. Former Republican Congressman Scott Klug reveals why he once took a date to a George Wallace political rally. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is former Republican Congressman Scott Klug. You know, it's interesting because I looked at an outline of some of the topics that you cover. You get personal. I want to go back to when you were at Marquette University High School and a date (laughs) <laughs> that you went on and, and what this kind of says about from a very young age what your political stance was well yeah this will tell you why i failed at romance <laughs> and why a lot of independent candidates for president will fail and, and that's one of the episodes we'll touch on later too yeah i dragged my high school girlfriend and said we've got tickets tonight for the old milwaukee arena and she's thinking it's 1968 you know fleetwood mac cream you know who's in town who's touring it was actually a george wallace political rally And I wanted to go to just sit and watch. People don't, there are three great independent runs for the president in this country. And all of them had different characteristics. So the first one is Theodore Roosevelt, who actually wins eight states. And it was a campaign largely based on his personality. The George Wallace campaign in 1968, actually Wallace won five states and came very close and three border states. He never thought he was going to win. But he thought he could deadlock the Electoral College and then have a say in who the next president would be and have an impact on it. And uh, Wallace had one of the first grassroots organization. You know, one of the great untold stories is the U.S. government has strong antitrust policies about U.S. business. There's no antitrust policy when it comes to politics. The Democrats and the Republicans wire the game so independent candidates can't get on. So everybody hears the Presidential Commission on Debates, right? You assume it's part of the U.S. government? It's not. It's in Washington. It's on 19th in New Hampshire. And it's the Republicans and the Democrats who get together and run the debates. There's not been an independent candidate on the stage since Ross Perot ran in 1992. There's four states in the country, California, New York, Florida and Texas, where it's virtually impossible for an independent candidate to get on the ballot. In California, if you decide to run, you have to gather 120,000 signatures in 60 days, 120,000 valid signatures, which means you probably have to gather 180,000. And that's what Ross Perot did. He had a grassroots army 
and he had the wind behind him because it was a time in the 90s where people were concerned about the deficit. They wanted to see a balanced budget amendment, line and veto authority, all those things. So you either have to be charismatic like Teddy Roosevelt does, have a sophisticated grassroots organization like George Wallace does, or have the time and the place. So right now, if you look, 50% of the American public says they'd consider voting for a third-party candidate. Can they really get on the ballot? And if they get on the ballot in all 50 states and look good in the polls where they really get on the stage, I wouldn't bet on it. Let's go back to when you were first elected in Congress, which was in 1990. You started serving in 91. How did it differ in terms of the way Republicans and Democrats worked together then versus now? Well, there was a big middle. You know, there was a huge swath of moderate Republicans and a big swath of centrist Democrats. I mean, when Bill Clinton got elected in 92, it was really the conservative blue dogs from the South that got Clinton elected and were the backbone of his administration. If you look in the early 90s, I mean, George Bush was a Yankee Republican. So here's the good news and the bad news. We'll do the bad news first. There are only 14 congressional districts in the country today where the House member is different than the president's candidate. So basically, all of the House races are almost completely wired. So there's no Republicans in the House or in the, there's one in the Senate, Olympia Snow in Maine, but it all got wiped out. You can't find a Democrat in Georgia, for the most part, in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in all those places, because the moderate Democrats got wiped out. But the good news, I think, which really excites me, and people, political scientists will tell me I'm a little Pollyannish here, but in 2022, there were significant numbers of ticket splitters around the country who voted for governors of one party and senators of the other. And for some reason, ticket splitting is sort of wired in Wisconsin's DNA. My dad was a Lutheran, German, Republican businessman. My mom was an Irish Catholic Democrat, child of union railroad workers. And for the most part, they'd sort of stay in their lanes, but they go back and forth. My dad loved Bill Proxmire and would always vote for him. I know my mom would vote for Republican presidents and Republican governors, and that still goes on here. But anyway, it's a little bit different in Georgia. Same ticket splitting in New Hampshire, same ticket splitting in Nevada, ticket splitting in Vermont. You think of Vermont, you think of Bernie Sanders, right? So in Vermont, the other incumbent senator who was up for re-election in 2022 got 68% of the vote. The incumbent Republican governor got 74% of the vote in Vermont. So that can still happen around the country. And I think that's what we need to do more of is to people think about what I simply call the case of the joys of ticket splitting. And that you should be voting for the best candidate. And sometimes that means crossing the aisle. And I think more people need to think about it and doing it rather than just pulling a lever. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. 72% of the national press lives in a county that Hillary Clinton won. All of those folks are based in New York or they're based in the Amtrak quarter between Boston and Washington, D.C. Former Congressman Scott Klug talks about the coastal elite media and whether or not they represent most people's views. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with former Republican Congressman Scott Klug. And Scott, do you think we'll ever return to a time when politics is less divisive? Well, it's complicated. This is where the media comes in. The other part of the story with the media, if you look at the numbers today, it's pretty shocking. Gallup says that only 28% of the country has confidence in the press today. Here's a number that if you're an old school guy like I am, there was a Pew story that said if you ask the American public, 76% thought journalists had an obligation to tell both sides of the story. 55% of journalists thought they had to do that. Well, <laughs> what are they doing? I mean, you're not supposed to be an advocate. You're supposed to be objective in doing this. And here's another part of it, and I'm not a big left-wing, right-wing conspiracy guy, but there was a great analysis done in political 
of 2016. I mean, I always thought a lot of the national press coverage when Trump got elected sounded like what it must have been like in the 1850s when the Times of London sent correspondence to find Dr. Livingston. It was a foreign world that nobody had visited. And when you look at the press coverage of Trump's election in 16, I didn't think he would win, but I could certainly feel if you talk to people, there was sort of something going on in the atmosphere you could pick up. Listen to these statistics, which is pretty amazing. 72% of all internet and the national press lives in a county that Hillary Clinton won. And they live in a county that Hillary Clinton won on an average of 30%. So you think about who you see at your kids' schools, who you go out to dinner with, who your next-door neighbors are. I mean, it's a bubble. I mean, and if you talk about an East Coast elite or a coastal elite, it is. All of those folks are based in New York or they're based in the Amtrak quarter between Boston and Washington, D.C. And so I think that's what gets people discouraged. And I'm not sure it will ever go back because the flip side of that, Libby, is that in a moment that will make your husband proud who's in the car business, I'm not quite sure when it happened, but somewhere in 1996, somebody bought a broken down Oldsmobile on Craigslist. Now, what does that have to do with the national political climate today? Because advertisers dependent so much on Sunday classified advertising that when that disappeared, it was the beginning of the end for the newspaper industry. Your listeners who are under 50 are going, a Sunday paper, what does that have to do with anything? But you know, your folks who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, remember a Sunday paper is where you bought used cars. It's where you look for real estate ads. It's where you looked for a job. I meant it used to be 40% of the size of the newspaper itself. So that started the trend on the newspaper side. One of the guys I worked with in Seattle TV was a guy named Randy Douthit. He was a young producer. He used to live in the same neighborhood that Tess and I did. And so Randy would once in a while give me a ride home if Tess had the car and was out with friends or running errands, whatever the case might be. We sort of lost touch with each other. I took a job in Washington, D.C., and I didn't really know where Randy ended up. So the first week I'm in office, my press secretary comes back and says, I've got a note for you from a guy named Randy Douthit, and it's a number for CNN. It's like... Randy Douthit. Well, this is cool. He's calling to congratulate me. He was actually calling to invite me on Crossfire because Randy is the guy who invented Crossfire. And so if you look at Crossfire today, people will tell you there have always been political talk shows, right? All the way back to the 1950s. But Crossfire turned political coverage into sports talk radio. It was a pie throwing contest. And that's exactly what it was designed to do. And we talked to Randy for this episode and he said, well, Yeah, we all yelled at each other a lot because it was good theater, but it was a First Amendment thing. We just yelled at each other over issues. Now people just make crap up that's on TV and radio, and that's where the problem really dissolves. So the media is under intense pressure, right, when the traditional circulation model doesn't work, when the advertising model doesn't work. And if you look at the cable TV shows, you can go to a website called All Sides where they rate all of the media outlets based on political bias. And they will argue that everybody's biased. Some places are more transparent than others, and others try to play it coy. So if you go to the far left, they'd point at MSNBC. If you go to the far right, you'd point at Fox or the Sinclair stations. If you look at the middle, it's like the BBC, Associated Press. Then if you look at slightly right, it's the Wall Street Journal, and slightly left, it's the New York Times and the Washington Post. So that's what's happened now, and people and the way algorithms work get sucked into their side of the equation, one side or the other. Now, again, when we began, 44% of the Americans think of themselves as centrist, and they're as frustrated with that press coverage as you and I are, but it's basic economics. If you want to survive as a newspaper, if you want to survive as a TV network, that's what you have to do in order to get viewers. 
Lost in the Middle. It's a podcast that you can find where, Scott? You can find it all those common places where you normally find it. The full name of the podcast is actually Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. Because like me, a lot of my neighbors, a lot of my friends, a lot of folks in both parties feel that way today. We've been talking with former Republican Congressman Scott Klug. He talked about his work with the State Department, including being an election observer in Iraq. He also talked about the state of American politics and why most people are in the middle. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Scott, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.